1: When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine miller karras
2: Welcome to Resiliency Within. This is Elaine Miller-Karis, and I am so happy to have with me my dear friend and colleague, Leslie Carroll, who's the prisoner ombudsman of Northern Ireland. I'll tell you a little bit more about her and Let you know a little bit about what our show is going to be about today. It has been a hard few months um, with the violence that we've been experiencing in society. And because I, I just got back from Northern Ireland and of course they had the conflict there, the troubles, which I'll have Leslie talk a little bit about. But I think their society has been working really hard to try to mitigate the impact of the aftermath of the extreme violence that they experienced in their society. And so I call this today, the lessons from Northern Ireland because I find that Leslie is a very wise soul and she's gonna share with us today, some of her insights but goodness gracious from, you know the streets and towns across the world from cities like Chicago to the genocide of Srebrenica, Bosnia what lessons can we learn from the peacemaking in Belfast? You know, Leslie has been involved in peacemaking and healing um, some of the historical traumas, not only of the past, but also what happens in the present moment. So as I said, she's a wise sage, and she's going to share some of her perspectives of what she's learned about living in Belfast. But also I think she's encountered some very interesting human beings who are working on the side of humanity to bring us together and not apart. So here she is as the prisoner of busman of Northern Ireland. It's a job which she says she cherishes as an opportunity to bring hope to those who experience a loss of voice and respect. She investigates complaints from prisoners and deaths in custody, including post-release deaths. Leslie Kerr Kira- Carol has always had a strong vocation to help bring healing and peace to her community. This led her into the ministry of the Presbyterian church in Ireland. And she was ordained in 1988 when she was just a wee lad. Look at that. I can even talk like I'm from Northern Ireland, a wee lad. She ministered in three congregations and deeply divided communities in the North side of Belfast for nearly 30 years. She truly is a natural leader and worked with people from across the community to increase understanding End Conflict and Seek Reconciliation. She was a member of the government-appointed co- consultative group in dealing with Northern Ireland's troubled past, which reported in 2009, and she was a member of the Victims and Survivors Forum 2012-2014 to 2014, and the Deputy Chief Commissioner of the Equality Commission of Northern Ireland from 2016 to 2019. So you can see she has a rich a rich past that brings us to her amazing wisdom that she has for us today to share um, some of her perspectives. So Leslie,
3: welcome. And
2: what is on your mind today,
3: my friend? Thank you, Elaine. Uh, it's it's nice to see you and to have a conversation this evening. I suppose um, what really was on my mind when you invited me to take part in your show this evening was this, this whole issue of violence, because today is actually the anniversary of the genocide in Srebrenica, Bosnia, where um, 8,000, just over 8,000 men and boys, uh, mostly Muslims, uh, were killed. And uh, I saw a film about that last week, so uh, we have very, close links between Belfast and Srebrenica. Um, And that just meant that violence was on my mind and the helplessness that we often feel in the face of overwhelming violence in particular. And as you say, it's been a tough few months, um, Texas, uh, for one, but in so many other other ways, so much violence. Yeah, Ukraine, Ukraine. absolutely. And
2: I think, you know, one of the things that you and I were talking about before the show started was there's things that we know about that have been more in the press and there's things that we don't know about yeah. and when we talked about the genocide in Srebrenica i was saying gosh in 1995 when that happened i was raising small kids i wasn't paying that much attention i knew that it happened but for you know for some reason now as i pay attention to 8000 boys and men because the city was supposed to be it was it was acknowledged right by the united nations as a safe city and so yes. for, for the reason that probably is about religion, that that was overlooked and all those men and boys were killed. And so knowing that what happened in Belfast was, I mean, I know that there's other undercurrents of besides big Catholic and Protestant that yeah. have led yeah. into the, the troubles. And I, you know, Leslie and I were, uh, Again, talking before we started and when I before I knew about I knew about the conflict that happened in Northern Ireland, but I didn't know what the troubles meant. So maybe that would be good, too, when we talk about some of the things you want to talk about, what were are the troubles? What were the troubles? And um, if you can just say a little bit about that, so our listeners know what that means.
3: Okay, so um, our, the island of Ireland is currently divided into north and south, six counties in the northeast, uh, which is called Northern Ireland, and then 26 counties, uh, which is the, the the country of Ireland, which is separate from Northern Ireland. So Northern Ireland is part of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. So we are a part of the British Peace, and then across the border, um, the Irish Peace. So that, that settlement uh, around the border, uh, which happened just over 100 years ago, uh, hasn't been pleasant for everybody, shall we say. Um, so there have been um, ongoing outbursts of violence uh, related to that. So when we talk about the troubles or the conflict, we're generally talking about 40 years of violence, which began somewhere uh, around 1968, 69, um, and which were then, uh, well, I was going to say settled, but that wouldn't be entirely true. But we did reach a peace agreement in 1998, which was known as the Belfast Good Friday agreement it was signed on Good Friday. And so, so- 40 years 40 years of violence sorry and <laughs> Elaine Elaine was laughing um with me earlier and saying she thought that the troubles was just my way of talking about it. Actually it's very political how you describe yes. those 40 years of of violence so um, we, we kind of have uh, come to a public uh, public settlement and we talk about the conflict in public, but some people do talk about the troubles because um, they feel to, to, to raise what happened to the status of conflict, is to give recognition to terrorism, and they, they don't like that. So it can be quite politicized. So by and large, the Protestant community, which is unionist and is very happy to stay in the union with Great Britain, uh, we would by and large talk about the Troubles or have talked about the Troubles, whereas uh, in the Catholic Nationalist Republican community, which would like um, all of the counties of Ireland to be one country of Ireland, they would often talk about the conflict. Um, so that that's the kind of broad strokes of it.
2: Well, and I was instructed about that when I came to do some trainings, <laughs> and so I would say, and so when during the conflict troubles, I would just kind of put that slash and say it both. So because <laughs> yes. I knew I had Catholics and Protestants in the same in the same uh training. And I imagine that that's for me coming as an outsider into into Belfast, but you live there, that I really have seen that there is a politics of semantics and how important that is.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
2: So and the other thing that strikes me about how you just described a hundred years ago was way before any of us were were alive and most of people in Northern Ireland were not alive a hundred years ago. And yet the stamp of what happened a hundred years ago is very much present in what's happening in present day. Could you maybe talk a little bit about that?
3: Absolutely. Um, memory is, uh, is is a really interesting thing to think about. So um, memory, uh, memory is ever present, if you like. So some, some memory has so much power to it, and the historical memory, the political historical memory in in this part of the world is very strong. So again, if you if you were to talk to the unionist loyalist community which is largely protestant um, we would we would be likely to be thinking of history and memory in terms of those 100 years if you were to talk to the the nationalist republican community which is by and large catholic they would be thinking in terms of hundreds of years hundreds of years um, because they feel that that their land has been um, under the, the heel of the British Empire for hundreds of years, not just for this hundred years. Um, so it's quite interesting there the how memory works. So in, in terms of making peace, actually, it's really important that we acknowledge the way that memory works differently um, for, for both sides of the conflict, and then to try to work our way inside the head of the other person, the so-called enemy, um, to, to understand how memory is influencing them. So it's very important that I'm a, from the Protestant community. Um, it's very important that I try to understand the, the length, the longitudinal memory that the Catholic community is influenced by so that I can understand why they think, behave, react, respond the way that they do. Um, and that, that is a, a real stretching of the mind, um, and in some ways, then, for for the other community to to listen to me with my very short memory, actually, um as the Protestant community, and thinking in terms of this wonderful a hundred years of this northern Irish state, um, you know, to, for for someone from the Nationalist Catholic community to shrink their memory into that short a hundred years and understand why the Protestant uh, unionist community thinks differently. This is a significant challenge, how we handle memory and how we understand the function of memory for different communities. Well, and I think as, you,
2: as you're speaking, I'm thinking about things that have happened all over the world, whether it be um, in the genocide that we mentioned earlier, or whether it's about how we segregate people in terms of race or religion, that those same issues that you're talking about that are important to be mindful of exist in so many places, you know, I can say in the United States as well as Northern Ireland and other parts of the world. So, you know, knowing, you know, one of the things that's been humbling about coming to Northern Ireland for myself as an American, uh, first of all, is how much you all know about American politics, which is always like to me, I think you know more about American politics than most people I meet in America. But I think the other part that's been very, um, Uh, telling to me is how many people have come from around the world to Northern Ireland in peacekeeping efforts. And I'm wondering is that we're talking about violence, but we're really also, you and I are both dedicated to peace and how we provide peace within ourselves and the world. I'm wondering if you can share a little bit with us about what are the lessons learned um, um, about being in this kind of center of the conflict that happened in Northern Ireland as a, and also as a Presbyterian minister, trying to understand that perspective of hundreds of years versus a hundred years.
3: Yeah. And, um, so what came to my mind there when I was, I was talking was, um, Vamick Vulcan, uh, who wrote a book called, uh, bloodlines from ethnic pride to ethnic terrorism um i, I think is Vamick is a psychologist or a psychiatrist um, and lives in the states as far as i know but anyway in his book he writes about chosen glories and chosen traumas um and in conflict he he describes how different sections of a community will will choose choose totemic memories, totemic in, incidents in history, if you like. Um, some of them glories in, in the sense that these were victories for us and our community. These are the good times for us and our community. So, for example, here in Northern Ireland tonight, there will be bonfires lit all over the this small piece of land um, because tomorrow is the big celebration uh, for the, the Protestant community on what we call the 12th of July um, uh, celebration. So it's a bit like your 4th of July independence. It's our 12th of July remembering um, how uh, we came to be in this part of, of Ireland, if so to speak. So this is a chosen glory night for the Protestant unionist community. It's quite a trauma It can be quite a traumatic night for the nationalist republican community, um, and there will be reasons for that. For example, um, posters of um, MLA. Sorry, you don't know what an MLA is. A member, a member of our local assembly, uh, our legislature. You could find posters of uh, people who are from the nationalist republican community on the bonfire. Or you could, fa- you could see the Irish flag flying on a bonfire. So it can be quite traumatic. So, oh my. Under- so I mean, actually they will burn yeah. the person's yeah. effigy yeah. and they will burn the, um, the flag, <laughs> the flag of the Irish Republic. They will. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Now, not on every bonfire, but on some bonfires. So you can see how the, what is a glory for one community is a trauma for another part of the community. The, the other interesting thing you talked there about the international dimensions as well, Elaine, and what, what's interesting even talking about this evening, uh, you will find um, Palestinian flags potentially on the bonfires as well. Um, and so one of the ways we mark territory in Northern Ireland is by using flags. So we use our own flags so that if you were to drive through some communities um, which are, are single identity communities? You will find uh, a Union Jack, which is the flag of the of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, or you will find an Ulster flag, or you will find the flag of Israel. Hmm. Whereas, if you drive through a, a Republican nationalist community, you will find the Irish flag, you'll find the Palestinian flag. Um, mm, so they've made the, sides
2: they, regarding yeah, Israel and Palestine. Yeah. yeah. With With one being towards Palestine and the other one being towards Israel. So it's a further way
3: of divisiveness. Exactly. And connecting to to the wider world around us. So uh, to acknowledge that there is division at an international level and that actually communities in division connect to each other in a way that further divides them. So I think that's that's perhaps an important thing to acknowledge that attempting to make peace in one part of the world can influence peace in another part of the world. Or the ability or, of people or to the, build or the opposite,
2: peace. right? The or the opposite, opposite precisely. So I mean and knowing you and the kind of person that you are, you have been drawn to trying to bring peace into the world. So yeah. I'm just You know, what are some of the things that you have done and been involved with personally that you think has made a difference in your community, Leslie, besides being a person? I mean, I guess what I've noticed about you is you're willing to do what I call that deep dive of listen um, to someone else's perspectives that may be different than your own. I just think that's so interesting when some people can't do that, that they're just so embedded and this is the only way that it is and don't say anything else. So just speak to us a little bit about that.
3: Okay, um so I don't find this particularly easy to talk about. Uh, no i don't i don't I don't think that there is anything particularly special here, right? But I do think what was important for me was that and it was a matter of faith for me. so my faith um, really demanded of me that I listen to my enemies or take some account of my enemies. Okay, so uh, pray for those who persecute you. That's what we read in the Bible. Love your enemy, pray for those who persecute you. Okay, so that was an overriding biblical notion that was in my mind. Now, I grew up in County Tyrone, which is a small country area um, way outside of Belfast. Uh, really very divided the town my where I went to school was the most bombed town in Northern Ireland when I was a teenager so it would have been quite normal for us and again you know when you think in terms of genocide in Srebrenica or Rwanda like this is these are very different experiences Uh, the much sharper shorter high impact experience of genocide but that in Northern Ireland, it was the low grade ongoing violence that just dripped at us for 40 years and was just overwhelming by the length of a time of it. So it would have been quite normal for me to uh, want to go into town after school to get the bus back home. And we couldn't because the town was closed or on occasions to meet people walking down the street with blood and blood dust on them because there'd been a bomb Um, our school day could have been interrupted fairly regularly with a, the threat of a bomb um, in our school so we learnt, we learnt very early in life how to do a fire drill and how <laughs> you know when they say at a fire drill move quickly and quietly girls Um, we learnt to just stand up immediately we didn't never picked anything up never spoke you mo- most, most kids shouldn't have to learn that.
2: Well, and, and, and when you talk about that, well, you're talking about when it's a drill, when there isn't something happening, but you had yes. things that were life-threatening. And when you talk about you being a teenager during a time when there's so much generativity and growth, and here you never knew whether or not there'd be a bombing where someone would be killed or hurt or maimed. And so what was that like for you as a kid? I mean, were you always worried about, am I going to be okay? Am I going to be safe?
3: Um, no, you know, strangely no. Um, and, you know, I think that you're quite right that there is a difference between a presumption of this being a drill and the presumption this might not be a drill. So yes. you, couldn't, you couldn't even make the presumption that it wasn't a drill because it might have been a drill. It might only have been a threat. It might not have been a real bomb, do you know. So, so you never really knew.
2: You, you never really
3: knew. Yeah, you never really knew. Now, did did I ever feel really hard done by? Not particularly. Did I ever feel unsafe? I don't think I ever articulated that or felt. Maybe my behaviour. Did I don't know. I've never. I've never thought that I felt unsafe. I know that I was far too accustomed to what I shouldn't have been accustomed to. So, for example, where our house was, um, there was a a bridge down the road, which was a favourite place to plant a bomb in the hope of being able to trigger that bomb to blow up soldiers or police officers. So our front door was often being blown up the hall. And my mother used to. (laughs) used to run and make hot sweet tea which is supposed to make you better after a big a big shock like that and we we both my brother and I got to the stage where we would say just go back to bed mommy we're okay oh, and we would just turn over so and go dear. back to sleep you know so we became too accustomed to what we shouldn't have become accustomed to now in the middle of all of that I was part of a small, Protestant um, Unionist community in a much larger, where I lived, nationalist, Republican, Catholic community. So I I knew I was a minority in that community, even though, and it would be fair to say that the Protestant Unionist community was the dominant community in Northern Ireland. Um, So even though that was true, we were also the minority community where I lived. So my neighbors, my friends, many of them Catholic nationalists. Um, And I suppose one of the life-changing moments for me in the midst of all of that, and with this um, in my mind, uh, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you and all of that. I suppose there were more than one life-changing moment, but the earliest one was when I was about probably about 11 years old when um, a, a woman and her husband were shot dead um, and they had five children. The eldest child was injured, uh, but all those children were left without parents. And they were from the Catholic nationalist community. They were moderate Catholics. They weren't um, at all connected to the Irish Republican Army or anything like that. They were moderates. Um, and the people who shot them were not only from my community, but from my congregation. So you knew who had shot them? I didn't know at the time. I I knew I knew that later. Um, But I mean, obviously, as an 11 year old child, you get a sense of people knowing something, even though you don't know what it is. Yes. So that was shattering to me that someone that I knew and knew I knew the woman well, she worked in the in the library. Uh, in the local library where I would have been in and out very regularly, I knew her very well I knew her by name, I knew her to speak to we'd been speaking to her and her husband the night before they were shot they'd been out for a a walk it was one of those heat wave days (laughs) like today Elaine Mm. Um, it was a lovely, I remember it was a lovely evening and Daddy was working in the garden and they'd walked past and they'd stopped to chat and then of course we'd seen them and run out and joined in the conversation and then they were these So
2: these were your friends And your family's friends, and then because they were Catholic, they were killed.
3: And And then we couldn't go, we couldn't go to the funeral because Protestants didn't go into a Catholic church at that time. So we couldn't go to the funeral. We couldn't acknowledge what had happened. So that was the beginning of me questioning, what on earth is this all about? Mm. Um, my, My good neighbors, my friends, what is this about? Uh, and then I, I suppose that you become more politically aware that you haven't much um, option growing up in the middle of all of that. So by the time I was 18, um, we were having an election in which Bobby Sands, who was the first hunger striker, he was a Republican hunger striker. Um, he, he eventually died on hunger strike, but he actually stood for election as a member of parliament in the constituency where I lived. Um, and there, there it was again. What is this all about? Why are yeah. people starving themselves to death for a political cause?
2: And so um, did, were there places for the children, for like teenagers, young people to congregate? Were there people working on conflict resolution or is it, it was just divided camps? I mean, here you this were is, this little girl who is obviously a brilliant yeah. little girl trying to figure out why are people being killed who I know and care about? And why would anybody want to do that to anyone?
3: The, the, I suppose the the most shocking thing about it, as I reflect back on it, is that we didn't talk about it. You didn't talk about it at all. We didn't talk about it. So we didn't talk about the fact that that the two people two of the people involved in the shooting came from our congregation. We didn't talk about the fact that, um, people were dying on hunger strike. We did we, we talked about the impact of it in the sense of isn't this dreadful and what's going to happen when somebody dies, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we talked in that sense, but we'd never talked about what it was doing to us as people.
2: Oh my goodness. I'm just you thinking know. about the grief. And of course, knowing that we both are very well schooled on the somatic, the biological impact of when you don't have a a way to talk about that kind of deep trauma.
3: Yeah, yeah. And you're never going to heal if you heal either yourself or other people or a country or make any kind of peace if we aren't talking. And I suppose that's one of my big lessons, Elaine. Talking matters.
2: Yes, and and even your role right now as the prisoner ombudsman, it's about talking and bringing out into the open things that sometimes are unspoken. Yeah. So, I, you know, we're ready to take, almost ready to take our break. And I just want our listeners to know that we are going to hear much more from this wise soul that will go to why there is the importance of talking, not only the work that she does with the prisoner ombudsman, but what she decided to do with her life which I really would love to hear from you talking about what made you decide to go into the ministry um, and be in that part of the conflict right in the middle of it for 30 years. And not that saying that it's, uh, it hasn't all been washed away because it hasn't, but I know that you're very much still active in trying to think about healing that can happen to that. The, I guess, the conspiracy of silence.
3: Yeah. I'll talk
2: about it that way. Um, And, you know, often you hear about people saying it's better not to say anything at all than to say something. And when we come back, I want to share a a little story, too, about a call that we had this morning with Ukraine about a little girl who was living with a mom who was definitely grief stricken because of what's happening with that war. So to say that Leslie now, who's an adult woman. But there are 11-year-olds suffering in many parts of the world that, you know, how can we make a difference now? I think that's one of the questions that I think we can maybe explore when we come back from our break. So we'll be back in just a a few minutes after hearing from our our sponsoring organization, the Trauma Resource Institute, Um, and uh, we'll be back shortly.
1: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
0: The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma-informed and resiliency-focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information.
4: Elaine Miller-Karis' book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models, is available on Amazon.com. Elaine Miller Karras co founded the Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at TraumaResourceInstitute.com. That's TraumaResourceInstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. Voice
1: America programs are now available on your favorite connected device
2: welcome back I'm here with Leslie Carroll the prisoner Ombudsman of Northern Ireland and we are talking about well we've been talking touching into the violence that happens in the world and her personal experience of living through a very uh, tumultuous time in Northern Ireland and we were she, we were just talking about her as an 11 year old who um, sadly knew two people that were close to her that died because of the conflict and and just the the imprint that leaves on a little person's heart and soul and mind. So Leslie, I'm just wondering as we come back and to kind of explore that, you know, as a result of that happening to you, what, how did that affect the course of what you became interested in? Because we were also talking about the silence of not talking about it. And um, here you became a minister (laughs) ministering (laughs) to people. Hmm. So over to you, if you can just give us a little bit more insight.
3: I suppose one of the one of the um, inquisitive questions, or coming from my inquisitive part, uh, after that incident when I was eleven, was why would people do this to each other? What is it that makes someone want to shoot, bomb, kill, murder someone else? How does how does that happen? And perhaps there was an unhealthy fascination for me in the middle of all of that and but never I mean to be honest there was a fascination Uh, and there was also a and I have no idea really why this sprung up so strongly a great desire to be somebody who made made peace or contributed to peace uh, a more peaceful world so that people didn't have to live with uh, the agony and the torture and the fear um, and and there would have been a lot of fear around when i was growing growing up while i wouldn't have necessarily been afraid my myself in terms of my individual safety nevertheless there was a fear that violence was going to break out on your doorstep that uh you know and you know, we're, we're very black humored in Northern Ireland and, and we had to be to survive. So there would have been a running joke in, in our house and um, you could tune into the police band radio, you know, and my dad would have been tuned into that all of the time. And if he'd have heard there was trouble nearby, he would have shouted, right, everybody into the car. So we'd have got in the car to go off to see where the trouble was. <laughs> Cause that was that crazy, you know? Um, <laughs> what I'm saying is that even though it could have been fear, I mean, when your door is being blasted
2: out of its moorings, I think that you <laughs> had a kind of a, a a way of coping to like uh, minimize the impact of what was really happening because maybe if you had to face it, it would be too much. It'd
3: be too much. Yeah, yeah. so the, yeah, it, it was like so, our- kind of surreal, you know, on reflection. So uh, I, I want to be making peace. I want to understand why people are doing this to each other. I want to understand what it is about history and memory that makes people the way that they are. And I'm a person of faith with these words echoing in my uh, ears. Blessed are the peacemakers. Love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. How the heck am I going to do anything to make a difference here? What is my... So I suppose there was a growing sense of vocation from all of that um and i decided that i would uh, like to be a presbyterian minister i decided that was where my vocation lay now it was a little bit of an oddity at the time um we had only just started to ordain women to the presbyterian ministry um by the time i was thinking of applying so i was the 12th woman ordained in our denomination so it wasn't a it wasn't the most pleasant of journeys either you know and you go you apply, apply for this i get accepted i'm thinking this is great this is god's call this is god's work and then it's hell on earth um, because not everybody thinks it's a really good idea for women to get her D and so, well, and I guess you know, I'll but- just say something about you about that
2: too, <laughs> is that, um, the way that we had this conversation about Leslie being on the show So I said, you know, I'm going to do a show about women in courage and you're one of the most courageous women I know. And of course she would never say that Elaine, there's lots of people that are courageous, but if, being one of 12 of, you know, women entering the ministry at that time, Leslie, I'm just going to say, you can call it what it is, but
3: I'm mm-hmm. saying you've got a lot of courage. Well, you see, I was so dumb, I didn't really realize. <laughs> oh, so maybe you can accept it a little bit that was a little bit of courage then. <laughs> so I suppose, I suppose I thought, And I mean, I, I admit I must have been incredibly naive. But you know what? I think that incredible naivety allowed me to survive for many years. Um. So I'm not going to disown it completely. No. But I was, I was naive enough to think that this was what I believed God was calling me to. The church had affirmed that calling going through the interview process, the discernment process. Therefore, everything was going to be okay. Well, you know, as you say that too,
2: is that you were naive, but there was a purpose that was bigger than self.
3: And I, I think, you know, I've been
2: true. thinking about courage thinking about the young woman in the United States named Cassidy Hutchinson, who just um, who worked for for Meadows and who decided that she needed to speak to the January 6th committee. And I'm not saying uh, whether any, you know, in terms of what people believe about that, who are my listeners. But the fact that she decided to speak up, which was in my estimation, when I heard her speak, it was there was something bigger that was involved in her speaking up because I think in her case, but I think also in your case, just by being uh, speaking up, she put herself in great danger. And when you're, when you're deciding to become a Presbyterian minister minister at a time during the troubles conflict in Northern Ireland, you're also placing yourself in great danger because you know that there's a certain amount of population. They don't care who you are as a person, but it's what you represent that could make you a target which i think is one of the very difficult parts of you know dealing with um trying to think about peacemaking and bringing resolution to these um kinds of uh you know horrors that happen to humankind because that's existing along with everything else i don't know your your comment your thought about that
3: yeah and i mean i, I think you know when we talk about uh, being a being a peacemaker or wanting to be involved in making peace in the world it sounds so grand and um and to be honest the tr the beginning of learning what peace making and building was about had nothing to do with the conflict in northern ireland absolutely nothing so i enter theological college um, I've never really not got on with people in my whole life. Yes, there are people you like better than others, but you know the the norm is we muddle along through life. We have the odd row in our family, we have the odd row uh, argument, uh, you know, in school, all of that. But we we're not really divided from each other as such. But I go to the seminary to theological college, and there are people there who will not even look at me because I'm a woman. They won't come to uh, prayers if I'm leading worship. Uh, they won't sit beside me in the dining room. If they, if they go through the door before me, they'll not hold it for me coming behind because I simply don't exist. Um, so suddenly, and, and this totally out of context for, you know, being this wonderful peacemaker, I'm faced with what do I do with these people to whom I am the enemy?
2: So you actually walked into a system where you could have a very lived experience of what that was like.
3: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and I was the only woman in my year in the first year. In the second year, another woman came and joined. And in the third year, another woman came and joined. Um, and that that had another dimension to it. It added another dimension to it as well. Um, and for myself, I decided that... Um, that no one should be treated badly and that if i wanted to be treated well then i needed to treat other people well so i would have uh, made the effort and didn't always succeed um and didn't always find it easy but i did try to always make the effort to speak to the people who wouldn't speak to me
2: so as as life has gone through the years i'm just curious have some of those people that you would have been in ministry with did they end up changing their tune because so much happened in the last 30 years regarding women in the ministry or not?
3: Some did and some didn't, and and some, some realized that they hadn't treated us women well. They didn't change their theological opinion, which is absolutely fine, um, but they did realize they hadn't treated us well, and they might have said something about that. Uh, in other instances, people uh, almost changed their minds completely. And, and you know, the, sometimes I'm making a judgment about that because not everyone will come back and explain that to you or talk to you, uh, you know, but sometimes they will. So there would have been a mixture there. But I think as we all went out into the world and matured, we realized that this business of of, of treating each other so badly and pretending that we didn't exist and making each other invisible was not Uh, the way for anybody to behave, never mind the Christian community to behave.
2: I know it just seems so to me ironic to think about Christianity and being a minister is about, you know, tending to the flock of Christ. And that part of that would be treat, you know, the golden rule, treat others as you would want to be treated yourself. And to think that there were those that went the opposite way when they're going to be ministers is always just such a confusion for me. And I imagine and I, the kind of person you were—it was probably confusing
3: to you too. It, I mean, it was extremely confusing because it certainly wasn't what I expected. But we're we're kind of back at the same theme as before the break. And um, so, talking matters. Bringing bringing things to the surface rather than pushing them down matters. Um, being being real about what's happening in front of your eyes matters, and it matters because uh violence breeds violence and if we don't uh do do anything at all if we simply stand by and allow violence to continue then it will breed more violence so we need to be bringing to the surface always the impact of that and um, encouraging people to speak to each other about the impact of that encouraging people to to speak up um, speaking up ourselves, uh, always bringing that to the surface. And I go back to the to the movie I saw last week about Srebrenica and to a woman called Aida who, wa- who was working for the UN as a translator. She had taught, uh, she was a teacher in Srebrenica actually, so she had taught many of those who were murdered and she had taught many of those who carried out the murders but she had to speak because she was an interpreter. Um, And and straight after the movie, we had a a panel discussion and my immediate reaction was, you know, you expect me to speak after seeing this movie. I have no words, but actually I must have words. We must speak. Um, And I think that, that that lesson is really important. You know, I could have, You know, as I look back at theological college, I could have just accepted the situation rather than try to do something about it. Doing something about it wasn't that dramatic at all. It might have just been saying good morning to someone who pretended I wasn't there. But that was refusing to be a bystander in a very simple way well and um, i also think that the other part
2: about violence is there's a physical violence but there's also yeah. emotional violence yeah psychological yeah. violence and you know when we talk about shunning which sounds like they tried to shun you and also bullying because there's also can be a component of bullying and shunning that that can be as um that can be as um horrible for the body as physical violence Um, in terms of those same places in the brain are reactive as if we were being physically hurt so it's important for people to know that violence comes in many forms and it's not it's not only with physical violence it also can be with the words that you use or not use even welcoming you would have been something that would have been more helpful than just pretending like you you didn't exist because when we think that someone and this is what always concerns me and i remember um, going to the, um, the Holocaust museum in Los Angeles, and they had some, um, they talked about the Rwandan genocide and they mm-hmm. talked about how, um, the, the Tutsis would talk, the Hutus would talk about the Tutsis as being cockroaches. You see, you yes. could kill a cockroach, but you can't kill a human being. And it's the way that we dehumanize, um, we dehumanize the other in so many different ways, like dehumanizing you as, you know, not be- becoming invisible is how violence can be nurtured. And so I just wanted to emphasize that because speaking up in truth to power, which was why I appreciated that young woman. I might feel very differently from her politically, but I do respect her courage of saying there was something that was happening that was about harming people that was wrong to me, and I couldn't keep silent and absolutely and that's also sounds you know even the way that you started in small ways but I know that you did more than um say hello to people <laughs> Leslie <laughs> <laughs> so can you say a little bit more about you know the kinds yeah. of things that you have been involved with that have been helpful
3: so I mean I suppose again I mean to stick with the naivety theme um so, you know, to remember that I'm committed to loving my enemies and praying for those who persecute me, to know that I'm learning to at least greet people who don't want to greet me, to know that there are people who look upon me as an enemy, as well as me looking on others as an enemy. All of this is going on. Um, and then I I receive an invitation to enter into dialogue with um Sinn Féin, which is the political party at at the time representing the IRA and the public domain, the Irish Republican Army. And they were the most been, radicalized
2: at that time, right? Yeah,
3: absolutely. Yes. So they would have been responsible for the Republican violence. There would have been other violent, other terrorist organizations as well. Um, but they, they, the IRA were the ones who want, wanted Ireland to be united. So the unionist community felt and my community felt that we were being attacked on all sides by republicanism. So I receive a call from a priest to say, we have these regular dialogues with senior people in the Irish Republican army would like you to come and have, be part of those conversations. And I'm like, what? Um, And they invited you you. Yeah. What have I got to say? You know, what, why are, why are you asking me? Will this put me or my family in danger? Will this put my ministry in danger? All these questions come torrenting through my mind And in the end, end of the day, there is only one answer because I've been going around saying, you know, we should love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us and we should be talking to each other and not uh, dehumanizing each other by pretending we don't exist. I didn't really have any choice. Well, I'm going to say that you could have had a choice, but you
2: chose not to because there was that, I mean, and please correct me, you know, you can, that over overarching um, belief that you had about purpose and meaning was more
3: important than your individual safety at that point. Well, it absolutely was it absolutely was and and t- I think maybe important for context uh, because it was it was it, this would have been probably around the early 1990s. At that time, uh, people from the Republican movement uh, weren't allowed to speak publicly at all. so if someone, from the Republican movement was appearing on the news, there would have been a voiceover. We would never have actually heard their voice. Um, and, and people didn't shake hands. So, you know, if, if, if people from the opposite side met in public, they didn't shake hands, they didn't greet each other. So that was the kind of context that we were living in, as well as the violence still being very active.
2: Oh, my gosh. You were the perfect person. And when you tell me about what happened with your ministry, about you not being even acknowledged and being invisible is that's what was happening to the republicans they were invisible even if you could see their face their words were not being heard so you understood that from a very visceral
3: level that's i I, absolutely i did and so we met we've started to meet and we met every month um a group of us ministers from different traditions catholic and protestant with uh some senior republicans and uh i mean i don't i don't know what people imagine goes on in a conversation like that i know that some people would talk about me as a do-gooder um but they certainly weren't do-goodish conversations they were sometimes very difficult conversations you know why why did why did the ira set that bomb last week why did the ira think it was okay to blow those people up last week why did the ira think it was okay to target that police officer and murder him last week do you realize what kind of situation you've left the, your family in um so they so were their responses gentle. in terms yeah yeah absolutely um uh, and i mean the the republican movement at that time was in, engaged in a project to get to know their unionist neighbors so they had reached a point um understanding that their war had been with the british and they thought very much in terms of london but actually their their People in the next door street who were unionist also thought of themselves as British. So, in the Republican mind, they weren't waging war on their neighbour in the next street. Uh-huh. But in the unionist mind, they were the person in the street next door, and they did feel like war was being waged on so them. So you had to unwrap so, those beliefs. Those were the kinds of things that we were we were having conversations about, um, and, <laughs> and yes, they were raw. They were raw conversations, um, and sometimes very difficult conversations. Well, I,
2: you know, Leslie, as we're talking about this, and I'm seeing our time quickly sleep, slipping away, I want to have you come back to kind of further this conversation. I hope you're willing to do that with me. Because I think that we're just getting started on even starting the conversation. So, I mean, so basically there was grief, there was silence, and that there was a group of people from both sides that said, we need to talk. And you talked about very difficult things, but that talking about very difficult things was the beginning of not being completely in separate camps, even though there were different ideologies. There was at least the conversation. And so um, is there anything about the talks, you know, like you could say maybe in a minute or so about what you want our listeners to leave with right now about those talks and how that pertains to today?
3: Um, The the open lines of communication are absolutely critical. So I, I know that in the U.S. you have a big problem with gun violence you need to be you need to be talking to the people who are on the opposite side you need to be getting people into the same room who have different opinions you need police officers you need community people you You need the nra you need need the nra you need the public policy makers you need them all in the same room because until everybody's talking to everybody and you need it also need in that room people who have suffered who will tell their story because it's the only authentic thing that'll be in that room in the end of the day well um, it, you know and today
2: um, president biden talked about the new legislation and i know that there was a father that said you know this is not enough in terms of you know what what would have protected my son's life who died in uh, one of the the uh, mass shootings at one of the high schools. So I think what you're saying is really important for us all to listen to. And I you know I want to say, Leslie, you know, you know how much I admire you. Leslie is a very humble person. She hates it when I do this. <laughs> I say to her how much I admire her. Look at that. If you can see her, she's shaking her head. Elaine, stop. But I do. And I think I do because of the very nature of who you are, that there is a humility about what it is that you know. And how you show up in the world in such a um, a way that is a uh, is a peacemaker, and you not necessarily are in the center high, uh, limelight all the time when you're working. behind. in fact, she's sh-
3: she's shaking her head. If you no, can see, no, definitely yes. not. We don't ta- we didn't tell anybody. I never told anybody I was meeting those people in the room. the only people who knew were the people in the room,
2: and so you were doing all that in trying behind the scenes to create a better um, Northern Ireland for people to not have to die. I'm sure thinking about the memory of those lovely people that died in your community. Can you just say their first name so maybe we can end today in their memory? Um, Gertie and Jim. Okay, Gertie and Jim. And to their memory and to the memory that was spawned that, and for the, the little girl that that day was spawned into action that that spawned her into action, that she said, I was going to do something differently to maybe bring an end to this kind of violence. And to you, my friend, you are the living example of what else is true in the world. And my listeners have heard me say these words many times, but those of you that are in situations where you can make a difference, as you heard from Leslie, it might just be saying hello to someone who is marginalizing or minimizing you. It may be sitting in rooms that are uncomfortable and talking about differences. But regardless of the different way that you come forth, remember what else can be true. And we're having Leslie on again so she can say another second part of the story because there's a lot more to tell. Thank you, my dear friend. Appreciate you you coming on. And it's very late in Northern Ireland right now. It's like almost (laughs) nine o'clock in the evening. So thank you. Thank you. We meet again. All the best.